This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. Policing during the pandemic, we talked to the new president of the Ontario Association of Police Chiefs. And fighting COVID-19 is not like fighting a war, a Statistics Canada alumnus warns against this strategy. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Nova Scotia this week became the first province in Canada requiring people to opt out of organ donation rather than opt in. This change to take effect in January is expected to increase donations by up to 50%. People or family members can still opt out and change their decision at any time. Presumed consent does not apply to anyone under 19 anyone lacking decision-making capabilities, or anyone who's lived in the province less than a year. The Liberal government has named Salma Lakani as the next lieutenant governor of Alberta, making her the first ever Muslim to hold the position in Canadian history. Lakani has lived in Edmonton for more than 40 years after her family was expelled from Uganda in 1972. The Ismaili Muslim has an impressive resume as a community advocate, focusing on education, health care, immigration, and human rights. Hadfield is an astronaut, a fighter pilot, a diver, and a musician. Now the 60-year-old has a bee species named after him. Saskatchewan scientist Corey Sheffield says he came across a unique-looking female bee while cataloging specimens in a collection with the Royal Saskatchewan Museum. He's named it Andrina Hatfieldy. Sheffield says he greatly respects Hatfield, who has become a renowned speaker and science educator. One of the last remaining stars of the golden age of Hollywood turned 104 this week. Now, if I can have the uh, envelope, Olivia de Havilland. Time Oscar winner Olivia de Havilland was photographed riding a bike just before her birthday. She was born in Tokyo to British parents a year before her sister Joan, with whom she had a lifelong feud. Joan changed her last name to Fontaine to distance herself from her sister. De Havilland made seven films with Errol Flynn, and after decades of speculation, admitted to an emotional love affair with him, which she said was never consummated. She won her Best Actress awards for to each his own and the heiress. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Will a woman's perspective help navigate policing during these turbulent times? Chief Angie McNeely of Kingston becomes the third woman to serve as president of the Ontario Association of Police Chiefs, and she sees change ahead. Some of the things that we're really looking at is um, with respect to the issues of combating and taking action against racism in all its forms, including the systemic racism in policing, looking at body-worn cameras, 
entered the call for change to see Ontario police leaders be defunded and what police reform may look like, and the complexities of investigating new and emerging crimes, and also really continuing to focus on our members' mental health and their well-being, to name but a few. And that's kind of coming out of what we're seeing right now. How has the current situation affected police? I'm talking about the combination of, of the pandemic and of some of the unrests that's accompanied it. I can tell you that it's, I think, very conflicting, and it's very conflicting for our frontline members in particular, who are, you know, putting their lives on the line and working out there, not only during the pandemic, in whatever situations they are within their communities, but then when you also have the vigils and demonstrations that have been happening globally, and some of that anti-police sentiment that's happening, it's compounding and adds to, I would say, the angst and and a bit of conflicting emotions that are happening. Do you find that police officers are actually hurt by the anti-police sentiment? I think that it does impact them, for sure, because, uh, I mean, we've got a great relationship with our communities, you know, and, uh, you know, we've got some tensions there, we've got that happening and it's it's uh it's things that are now uncomfortable and it's things that now trigger us to say you know we really need to talk about this and we need to have this dialogue it's uncomfortable conversations but i think it's things that we need to have what's your reaction to suddenly we're seeing these calls to defund the police yes and defunding has a couple of meanings uh, you know it could be taking away all the money and getting rid of policing or or diverting money from one area to another and i think you know the oicp has for years been part of the larger discussion at the provincial level on how we as a society can adequately fund social and health care services many of which have had their budgets cut or have been underfunded by the government for quite a long time so policing in ontario ensures that our communities are safe secure healthy and prosperous and it's about importance of public uh, police services requiring significant resources. And the fact is that police don't want to be the primary responders when it comes to mental health or homelessness or addictions, those softer things that are happening in our society. However, policing is the only service that operates, as you know, 365, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and other social service agencies aren't necessarily there 24-7 when those calls come in. And that's really where um, a solution has to be developed, a better alternative discussions based on evidence and research and partnerships with our community. And we're committed to working with the government and community partners to build what that response will look like. Really, the answer is refunding the system that has been really underfunded for so long. Here at Zoomer, we focus on an older demographic. What is your view on the role of police in stopping elder abuse, particularly financial elder abuse? Absolutely. I mean, the elder population are one of our most vulnerable um, during any kind of time generally. But when you get pandemics and you get other forms of crisis that are happening, you've got people that are taking advantage of the anybody that's vulnerable. But the elderly in particular are getting are getting hit. And it's difficult. We, we take that seriously, and it's really important that we look after them. Do you feel that perhaps resources have been taken away in the midst of all this other crisis? I don't see that happening in... In our communities here, I mean, I, we still have our detective offices that are fully functioning, that are responding to elder abuse. We have a vulnerable sector unit, so that still occurs. It might be the report taking that might be a little bit different if people were not allowed to go into long-term care or other um, facilities where elderly people are living. But certainly, um, we would be protective wearing PPEs to take those reports, whether it's in person or over the phone. So we still have all those resources there to look after our, our, uh, our, our communities. Chief Angie McNeely, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thanks very much. Kingston Police Chief Angie McNeely is the newly elected president of the Ontario Association of Police Chiefs. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. This week, we learned the economy dropped 11.6% in April, the largest monthly drop on record due to the pandemic. The massive expansion of government spending and debt has many comparing COVID-19 to fighting a war and looking to history to point the way to recovery. That's the wrong approach, according to Philip Cross, a 36-year veteran of Statistics Canada and a Monk Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. We've all been asked to make sacrifices. We've all been asked to stay home, wear masks, social distance, and so on. So this is the kind of collective effort that you would normally associate with war. Uh, I find the analogy with war really doesn't apply. I think that people tend to compare a lot of things to war, for instance, illness, and it is generally not that apt. No, and, you know, war really was a life-and-death struggle for the survival of our society. Three million Canadians have lost their jobs. Lots of people have lost, you know, all kinds of of, uh, wealth and so on and so forth. But they seem to be willing only to do this for a short time. I don't get the feeling from Canadians that they're willing to completely restructure their economy like we did in war. In war, we just literally shut down. I think in some years we produced one automobile in this country. I mean, I don't think there's any indication that consumers in the long term are willing to give up a whole bunch of their consumption and just give that space to government and say, you occupy it, we aren't interested in consuming anymore. I think as soon as things get back to normal in the economy, people want to have their normal life back as quickly as possible. Aren't we going to shift some things, though? We saw some companies shifting to making personal protective equipment, masks, and we kind of realized that uh, we should not rely on other countries like China for things like that. Sure. And yes, you know, for example, some of the automobile companies have shifted from making automobiles to making uh, medical equipment, but I don't think that's uh, permanent. I don't see General Motors becoming General Hospital anytime soon. I think, you know, they understood that this was a crisis situation and and people weren't buying cars anyway, so they might as well make something. But in the longer term, I think General Motors wants to get back to making cars as soon as possible. And I, I think people want to get back to buying cars as as soon as they can. What about the damage to the economy? I think we just saw some second quarter numbers uh, shrank 11%. Yes, my colleagues at Statistics Canada, my former colleagues at Statistics Canada, published the largest drop in GDP we've ever seen. Uh, this was on the heels of a very sharp drop in in March. So altogether, we've seen the, the economy contract by 20%. I've got to admit, as an economist, these, these types of, of declines are simply staggering. I mean, we've never seen anything remotely like this on, since the 1930s. And in the 1930s, these sorts of declines were spread over years. They weren't packed into two months. So we really did go through a, a wrenching uh, shutdown of the economy. In retrospect, you kind of wonder, why are people su- surprised that this was so severe? After all, we did shut down the non-essential portion of our economy. Most personal face-to-face services have been interrupted. So, you know, whole swaths of the economy have been closed. So, you know, that was going to be painful. This has been a probably a lot more severe than what governments expected when they shut down the economy. 
But that's, you know, that's why I think, you know, the pressure is now on governments to reopen as quickly as possible. You don't want to overdo it like the southern states probably reopen too quickly. But, you know, we cannot sustain these types of losses for long. You mentioned the 1930s. A lot of people are saying we're headed into a 1930s-style depression. I don't think so. I think what made the 30s different was that it lasted so long. That's what made the Depression great. This is likely to be a very short but severe contraction of the economy, not something that was spread out over 10 years like the 1930s. Some things are coming back, but there are a lot of businesses that will never reopen again because they couldn't survive this. So is the whole economy going to shift? Well, I think what we've gone through is, I think, is sort of the typical Keynesian recession. You know, people lost their jobs, they lost a lot of income, therefore they cut back in spending. And we went through that very rapidly in March and April. My concern is that we haven't really dealt with the the longer-term effects of these closings, which is going to be a lot of bankruptcies and especially of business. We know that, you know, a lot of airlines are in trouble, a lot of restaurants, a lot of the travel-related services, a lot of small businesses. And if a lot of those get into trouble, if six and nine months from now, these people aren't able to pay their bills, that's going to have knock-on effects to the suppliers. That's going to have knock-on effects to banks. Uh, so I'd be concerned that, uh, we, you know, we may not have, I don't think we've seen the, uh, the complete effects of this yet. I don't think this is just going to be two months of sharp decline and then we'll start recovering. I think there's going to be a lingering effect of this. And that's the part that I think we have to contain and make sure that that doesn't get out of control. Uh, otherwise, you know, we're going to have the kind of difficulties that we saw in the 1930s. The government has stepped in, obviously, with all of these programs, notably the CERB, giving people $2,000 a month if they've lost their jobs, uh, wage subsidies, a whole host of other programs. And it seems like every week we were hearing about a different kind of support to a, a, a different group. Right. How long can we keep affording to do this? Well, not long. I think it's one thing to give government a pass and say, okay, for a couple months we understand this. But you better not make a habit of it. And, yeah, I think there has to be a lot of concern that this government doesn't show a lot of uh, understanding that this cannot continue for long. So how are we going to get out of this? We're going to have to figure out a way to conduct our economy uh, without, you know, uh, the the face-to-face interactions that we're used to. So, we're, you know, a lot of firms are going to have to rethink how they deliver services. Can restaurants open? Can they stay in business with every second table closed? Uh, I'm not so sure, but, you know, we're going to have to find some way of, of dealing with this. Is there any analogy to how the economy recovered after the war? Oh, I really don't think so. I think at that time, you know, uh, it would especially government finances recovered rapidly after the war because we entered into a period of unparalleled economic growth. We were racking up 5% gains a year. There's just no chance we're going to be going back to that. We're going to have to tackle the deficit the way we did in the the 1990s and after the 2008 recession, which is we're going to have to focus on spending restraint, and uh, mixed in with only a very small reliance on tax increases. Well, how do you have spending restraint if you have all these people out of work? 
Well, you've got to get them back to work as quickly as possible, and you have to start saying no to people. You know, at some point, we cannot pay people indefinitely $2,000 a month to stay home forever. Philip Cross, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. That was Philip Cross of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.